hey, welcome to First Church. If you're new, my name's Chad, and we are so glad that you're joining us here today. Whether you're in person or online, we are glad to have you. And if you are here in person, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online community here today? So excited to have them join us. If you guys aren't aware of this, it was actually this time last year that we were making the decision to go completely online because COVID-19 was starting to be called a pandemic and everything was going crazy. And a year ago, about this time, we weren't sure what the future was going to hold, but our God has been with us. He's been faithful. His gracious hand has been upon us. And I believe a year later, our church, First Church, is stronger than it's ever been. And so we give God all the praise and we are excited about what he continues to do in this place. And if you were with us last Sunday, you know, that we launched a new teaching series entitled, This is Jesus. Is this our Easter series as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday and we celebrate what Jesus came to do to die on the cross and also to rise from the dead? And during this series, we are asking one primary question, and it's this. Who is Jesus? Because here's the thing. No one has impacted or influenced our world, our culture, more than Jesus Christ. We've all heard his name before. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Jesus in our world today, but what I've encountered, what I've experienced is that a lot of what's said about Jesus isn't exactly who he is. There are a lot of misconceptions and false ideas about Jesus floating around in our culture today that are based more on, well, our opinions of who we think he should be or our assumptions about him rather than his real identity. And so in this series, we're looking at who Jesus really is because Jesus wants to make himself known to us. His identity shouldn't be a mystery. It was never intended to be a secret. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to personally, intimately know him. In fact, listen to what he says in the Gospel of John. Chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. It's not just that he knows everything about us. He wants us to know him as well. He wants us to have this personal relationship with him where we trust him to the point that we follow him as our good shepherd, that we follow the path that he wants us to take in life, that we understand who he is and know that he has our best interest at heart. And that's why we're saying in this series, the better you know Jesus, the better you'll understand God's purpose for your life, the reason for which you were created. And let me take this to another level. Honestly, until you know Jesus, you will never fully, completely understand God's purpose for your life. So let me ask you the question again, who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? What's your picture image of him? How well do you know him? There's this pediatric dentist in the state of New Jersey that realized several years ago that his patients, little kids, they were often nervous and scared and anxious when they would come and visit him because the dentist chair can be a little bit intimidating at times. And so he decided to learn some magic tricks in order to take away the fear of his patients, in order to help them understand that, yeah, they may have to do some uncomfortable stuff like teeth cleaning or maybe cavities, fill some cavities or whatever, but... He still loves them, has their best interest at heart, and wants to make it as fun as possible. And his videos have gone viral, and I want to show you one clip of him doing a magic trick for a little boy. And I just think this is awesome. Take a look at this video. No, it is. Watch this look. He's the ancient bastards. No, you're going to make the light not so blue. Watch. Watch. Head over here. Comes in over here. Where is it? Do you 
Check your hands. He's on the chin. Let me see. Can you hold it? Where'd it go? Hmm. Oh, you got it. Check your hand now. Look. Look on your hand. One. I don't know about you guys, but I want to go to that dentist. Looks like a lot of fun, honestly. But you know, I love that dentist approach. He understands he's going to have to make some of those kids feel a little uncomfortable because, you know, sometimes when you can clean your teeth, you have to sit in a dentist chair, maybe like I said, have cavities filled or whatever. It's not easy. It's not fun. But he wants them to know up front he has their best interest at heart. He's not their enemy. He's not against them. He's not trying to be mean or anything like that. He's trying to help them. He just wants them to be healthy and he wants them to know he cares about them and he loves them. I love that approach. And honestly, I believe that's how Jesus wants us to see him. He wants us to see, he wants us to see him in a very similar way. In fact, listen to what John says about Jesus. Says, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Those two words stand out to me. Jesus came to us from the Father full of grace and truth. And I hope those words stand out to you as well. Let's look at the second one first, the word truth. Jesus came to us in order to tell us the truth about our lives, to let us know where we really were, how far we've gone from God, the truth about how sin has affected our lives and corrupted our lives and messed up the plan that God gave to us. He wanted to let us know about where we really were, our brokenness. He wanted to give us the truth so that we could be aware of the situation that we were in because of sin. We talked a few weeks ago about how the word sin in Greek, it's an archery term, and it literally means to miss the mark. It means to aim at the wrong target, and that's what all of us have done. God gave us this perfect target, this perfect plan for us to live out, and it had purpose and meaning and value, and what we chose to do was to aim at the wrong target, thinking that something or someone else would bring us happiness and satisfaction and joy, and all it led to was destruction. So Jesus came to set us back on the right track, to tell us the truth about what life is really supposed to be all about. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to tell us this truth about how broken we are, how messed up we are, what sin has done to us, just to be mean, just to criticize us, just to scold us or condemn us even. In fact, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says in John chapter 3, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus I didn't come to condemn the world. And I'm just going to be very transparent with you. This statement right here has not always described the image, the picture that I've had of Jesus in my past. I grew up in church, but there is a season in my life where I pictured God more as this colossal cosmic referee up in the heavens with a whistle ready to blow every time that I messed up, every time that I did something wrong, ready to penalize me every time I did something wrong. And yet that's not the image that Jesus gives us of the Father or of himself. 
says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. I came to rescue the world. In other words, I came so that you could live a different story. I didn't come just to criticize you or make you feel bad. I came to show you the way out. And that's why when we go back to what John says about Jesus in chapter 1, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. He doesn't look past sin. He doesn't ignore our sin. But he came for the purpose of not condemning us, but changing us so that we can live the life that God originally intended us to live. He came to tell us the truth in love. He came to show us a better way of life, the best way of life, his way of life. He came to let us know he has our best interests at heart. And I think that is extremely important because you will never listen to someone until you know they are for you. See, we'll never really follow Jesus, completely, fully follow Jesus until we realize he's for us. That he's not out to get us. He's not out to trap us. He's not here to condemn us. He's for us. And he has our best interest at heart. And as we move through this series, This Is Jesus, today, if you don't leave hearing anything else I say, I hope you leave hearing this. Jesus is for you. He's for you, not against you. He doesn't look past your sin. He doesn't ignore your sin, but he wants to rescue you from it. He's for you. And that's exactly what a woman that we mean in John chapter 8 needed to hear. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be today is John chapter 8. And this woman that we're introduced to in this passage, we're actually not told a whole lot about her. We're not given her name. We're not given her background, her family history, anything like that. We really don't know a whole lot about her at all, but what we do know about her, well, it isn't good. In fact, this moment that we meet her in John chapter 8, it's probably the lowest point of her life. She's hit rock bottom. You can't get much lower than this. And we meet her one day as Jesus is teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. This woman, if she were to describe her life in a few words, at this point, she would probably use words like broken, exposed, empty, afraid, ashamed, trapped, used. That's how she would describe herself. There were a bunch of people around her on this day. And the crowds gathered around her, well, they probably would have used other words. They would have used words like trashy, cheap, dirty, worthless. That's how everyone else saw her. But not Jesus. Jesus didn't see her that way at all. Let's look at her story and let's see what happens. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again in the temple, temple courts. A crowd soon gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, teaching here, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something 
they could use against him. And what we need to understand is at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, the religious elite have been trying to trap Jesus for some time. They don't like Jesus. You know why? Jesus is extremely popular. There are people flocking to him all the time. Crowds follow him everywhere he goes. He is the most famous, well-known religious rabbi teacher around. Not only that, he's probably the most famous person in this region right now. He's a local celebrity, and everybody wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. Everybody wants to see him. And what that means is people aren't listening and following the religious establishment like they once were. And so the religious leaders, they're jealous of Jesus, so they're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to ruin his credibility among the crowds. So they try to trap him. They ask him tricky questions. They try to get him to say something against God's law. They try to trick him into breaking Roman law. They do all sorts of stuff trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus passes every one of their tests. He never gets caught in one of their traps. But today, in John chapter 8, they think they have him. This is their best scheme yet. They've gone all in on this one, and this is what they do. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and this is during a feast time, so there's probably hundreds and hundreds of people gathered around Jesus in this very moment listening to him teach. So just imagine a church service, basically, with hundreds and hundreds of people and somebody standing up preaching before them. That's what's going on here. And this is probably like the best sermon that they have ever heard because it's Jesus preaching, you know? So just imagine the best sermon you've ever heard, like this one right here. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. But just imagine the best sermon you've ever heard, Jesus teaching He's laying it out there. Everybody's hanging on his every word. And all of a sudden, the doors fly open. And in come the religious leaders. You can tell they're the religious guys. I mean, they're, they're dressed in their religious garb. and They just have a certain air about them. And they just come on in. But they're not alone. They're dragging with them a half-naked woman. Maybe completely naked. And they throw her in front of the crowd, throw her at Jesus' feet. And they say, teacher, this woman, she was caught committing adultery just now. What should we do with someone like her? I bet you could have heard a pin drop. I bet nobody in the crowd that day left their seat to go use a restroom or get a refill on coffee. <laughs> they were all waiting to hear how Jesus would respond their eyes locked on this woman, probably in shock. What should we do with someone like her? See, this is a trap. Because the religious leaders, they think this is a gotcha moment. They think that they've just asked Jesus a gotcha question. They think there's no good way out for him because here's the thing. They knew the law of Moses said anybody who's caught committing adultery needed to be stoned, executed. And so they, they know Jesus is one who follows the law. And if he says, well, the law of Moses says she needs us to be stoned, well, this is what they were going to do. They were going to turn him over to the Roman authorities because the moment that Jesus said stone her, all the Jews gathered around would have picked up stones and they would have executed her on the spot. That happened a lot, by the way. And normally, they just would never report that to the Romans. But you see, the Jews are under Roman authority and the Romans had a law that said you can't execute somebody without our permission. So this time, they were going to turn Jesus in. Hey, Jesus was the instigator of an unlawful execution. So if he says stone her, turn him into the Romans. If he says not to stone her, 
Well, then they can say, he's violating the law of Moses. He doesn't believe in the law of Moses. Trying again to hurt his credibility with the crowds. They think they have him. They think this is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. It's a trap. But it's not just a trap. I also think it's a setup. Because I think this was all planned out to happen. How else would you catch somebody in the act of adultery? Right in the very moment that Jesus is teaching in the temple. This is all a setup. And where's the guy? I mean, doesn't it take two to commit adultery? I mean, where's the dude? According to the law of Moses, both the male and female offenders were to be punished. So where's the guy? Where's the dude? It's a setup. See, I wouldn't put it past these religious teachers. The Bible doesn't say this, but I wouldn't put it past these teachers of the law to go find some Roman soldier who wasn't under Jewish law. See, the Romans, they didn't care if you committed adultery. They didn't have any laws like that. <laughs> were the Jews that had laws like that. And so they could go find some Roman soldier who wasn't a Jew and say, hey, buddy, we'll pay you to go sleep with that girl. And that Roman soldier, okay, what girl, where? Okay, sure. And he went. I wouldn't put it past him. I don't know if that's what happened, but... The religious leaders, they typically used and abused people, devalued people, in order to push forward their selfish agendas. We see this happening over and over and over again in the Gospels, of them using and abusing people, devaluing people, in order to promote their own selfish goals. And doesn't that describe the world we live in? I don't think it captures the heart of God at all, even though these guys claim to know and love God. But it does capture the heart of our world. We live in a world that uses and devalues people all the time. And sadly, it even happens sometimes in the church. See, what I've discovered is this. I've discovered that we can be so blinded by selfishness that we can't see the intrinsic worth of people. And I think that's what's going on here. These Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're so blinded by selfishness, their own selfish wants and desires, that this woman becomes a casualty to their own personal ambitions. It's sad. I saw this, or actually somebody sent me a picture of this church sign just the other day, and I'm not exactly sure how to read that. You tell me, because you can kind of read it two ways. You can say, we love hurting people, or you can say, we love hurting people. I'm not exactly sure how you're supposed to read that. But we laugh because we've all been part of churches or maybe we've heard about churches where people have been hurt because those who claim to be followers of Jesus have decided to follow their own selfish ambitions rather than have God's heart. And let me just have a moment to say something about social media. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're on social media, before you post anything, let, let me challenge you to ask yourself a question. Will this post that I'm getting ready to put up help somebody experience the love of God, understand who he is better, understand that I represent him in this world, or will it create any type of barrier to where that person won't listen to me in the future, introduce them to the love of God. Because guys, here's the thing. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus did not agree with this woman's lifestyle choices, but he loves her. And if he would have immediately condemned her, 
rather than show her love first, she would have never listened to him. We can disagree with people on social media, but let's do it in love so that we don't hurt our witness and we don't embarrass Jesus in the process. I'll move on from that. So we're looking at this woman. And let me just ask you, how do you think she feels in this moment? I mean, how do you think, how do you think she feels? What emotions are going through her right now? As there she is, probably half-clothed, embarrassed in front of everybody. I've got a feeling the only emotion that she's feeling in this moment is shame. Because that's what sin does. Sin always leads to shame. Maybe not at first, but eventually sin leads to shame. Because there is no sin that doesn't have consequences, destructive consequences, eventually. In fact, the book of Numbers says this in Scripture. It says, your sin will find you out. Eventually, the sin you're committing, it will come back to haunt you. It will find you out. I love how the message paraphrases this verse. It says, you can be sure that your sin will track you down. Eventually, the sin you're committing, it might seem fun for the moment. You may not think that it's going to do any harm in the moment, but eventually, it's going to track you down. Eventually, it's going to find you out. Eventually, it's going to come back to haunt you. Eventually, eventually, it's going to lead to shame. And that's where this woman is. And I think most of us understand that. We understand there are consequences to sin. I don't think there's anybody in this room that would say there are absolutely no consequences to sin. But my question is, why do we continue to do it then? If we know that sin always leads to destructive consequences, why do we keep on doing it? You want to know my deep theological answer? Because it's fun. What, did the preacher just say sin is fun? Yeah, it's fun. If it wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it. It seems fun in the moment. It seems fun, it seems exciting, it seems exhilarating. In the moment, sin seems fun until it's not. Sin seems fun until it's exposed, until the world starts to crash around you because of that sin. Sin seems like fun until it's not. How many of you guys have ever played with one of these before? Anybody ever played with a super soaker water gun? Anybody? Let see a show of hands, okay? At home, you guys played with these before? How many of you guys are nervous right now? You should be. Ooh, there we go. All right, did I get you? Okay, sorry. I'll stop. Not really. Okay, here we go. Uh, but there are a few things in life that don't mix. Oil and water, orange juice after you brush your teeth, Oklahoma State fans and OU fans, Texas fans and anybody from the state of Oklahoma, you know, there are a few things in life that just don't mix. And one of those things is an eight-year-old boy named Chad Broadus with a brand-new Super Soaker water gun and his parents' brand-new TV that they had purchased. When I was eight years old, I got a brand-new water gun. My brother got one as well. He's two years younger than me. And my parents said, whatever you do, don't play with it inside. Make sure you only use your water guns outside. Well, one Sunday afternoon, my parents took a nap, and guess what? We decided to play with our water guns inside. And we thought, it's water. It'll dry. It's not a big deal. And so we had a water gun war, and it was incredible. It was awesome. We had so much fun, and at one point, we accidentally shot the brand-new TV that my parents had just purchased. And when we did, it hit the screen, and it kind of, like, made some funny designs and stuff on the screens, one of those old TVs, you know. We thought, well, that's cool. Let's see if it does it again. So we shot it again and again and again until pretty soon we had soaked that TV, and then it kind of sparked and made some noise, and it shut off. And it was a lot of fun. 
until my parents woke up. <laughs> and then we were in a whole lot of trouble. And I remember not only did we not get our super soaker water guns back, we were grounded like forever. I think that's the longest I've ever been grounded in my life, honestly. My parents were not real happy. But you know that water gun fight inside? It was a lot of fun. Until it wasn't. That's how sin works. It's fun. Until you got to pay the consequences. Sin's a lot of fun. Until you got the DUI. It's a lot of fun. Until your spouse left you. It's a lot of fun. Until your kids said that they hated you. It's a lot of fun. Until you lost your job. It's a lot of fun until it's exposed. This woman, in John chapter 8, her sin has found her out. She is experiencing nothing but shame in this moment. And she feels like her life is over. The people gathered around, they've got stones in their hands ready to launch them in her direction. And they're waiting for an answer from Jesus and they keep asking, teacher, rabbi, what should we do with someone like her? And I love what Jesus does. If we read on the passage, it says, but Jesus stooped down. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus stoops down, doesn't give them an answer. First, he stoops down and he gets down in the dirt. Why? Because that's where her eyes were. See, this woman is experiencing nothing but shame. And I guarantee she's not looking at anyone in the crowd in their eyes. She's probably trying to cover herself up. She may be bent down. Her eyes are towards the ground. She's not looking around. She's looking at the dirt. And what does Jesus do? He gets where her eyes are. He stoops down to make eye contact with her. And that's the God we serve. We serve a God who's willing to get in the dirt with us. Because we serve a God who isn't afraid of our mess. See, Jesus, he's not afraid of our mess. That's the whole reason why he came. Look at what Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul says this. He says, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Translation, Jesus entered into our mess so that he could clean it up so that he could take on our mess for us and we could then be made pure. We could become the righteousness of God, which we did not deserve. See, Jesus, he stooped down into our brokenness, our mistakes, our past, our sin in order to lift us up out of it. See, that's what Jesus does. Jesus stoops down to lift people up, to lift you and me up. He gets down on the level of this woman. And then he does something else. Look, what it, look at what he does next. He wrote in the dust with his finger. So Jesus starts doodling in the dirt here. And every time I preach on this passage, anytime I talk to somebody about this passage, the first question that comes up is always, 
What was Jesus riding? In fact, we have a production meeting every Thursday where we go through the entire service. We were going over my sermon slides and notes and all that, and our production team said, Chad, what was Jesus riding? I mean, that's the question everybody wants to know. And are you ready again for my deep theological answer? I mean, I've now been in full-time ministry for 13 years. I've preached on this text numerous times. I've got a doctorate in ministry. Are you ready for my deep theological professional answer? You know what Jesus was riding? I have no earthly idea. And no one does besides probably Jesus, God, and maybe that woman. I don't think we're meant to know. If we were meant to know, the Bible would have recorded what he wrote down. I think what we're meant to know is that he was riding in the dirt. That's what it tells us. And what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is taking the attention off of the woman. See, everybody else is focused on her, this half-naked woman. And all of a sudden, Jesus bends down and starts to doodle in the dirt, and everybody's eyes go from her to him. And it's like, what's he doing? What's he writing? What's going on? Jesus is taking the shame off of her. He's taking the attention off of her so that everybody can look to him. Isn't that what Jesus does for us too? And I know some people want to continue to press the issue, and I've read commentaries where they say, well, I think Jesus was writing down the sins of every man who was gathered around to let them know they were sinners too. I think that would take a really long time to write in the dirt, even if you're Jesus, you know? And I've heard some people say, well, maybe he was writing down all the Ten Commandments. Her mind, and they broke some of the Ten Commandments themselves. Again, I think it would take a really long time in the dirt to write down all Ten Commandments. You know, I don't think that whatever he was writing was meant for the crowd. Because here's the thing. you got hundreds of people gathered around. People would have struggled to see whatever he was writing. I think whatever he was writing, it was to her. I think he was trying to let her know that she was valued by God. I don't know what he wrote, but I think it was to her. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... They get impatient. And listen to what happens. They kept demanding an answer of Jesus. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again where she was and wrote in the dust. So Jesus says, okay, you want to know what to do? Stoner. And the crowd, they pick up their stones and they're ready to throw. And Jesus says, but hang on just a second. The one who's never sinned, get us started. The one who's never sinned, you throw the first stone. And in that moment, their arms probably went from here to here. Look what the passage says. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. One by one, this happened. You know what that's the sound of? grace. That's the sound of grace. I heard someone say that years ago. It's not original to me, but I've never forgotten it. Because the sound of grace is when we stop throwing stones and we start dropping them. That's the sound of grace. You see, 
I keep a stone like this one in my office here at the church. If you've ever stopped by my office, you know that on a table I keep a stone just like this one to remind me that I don't have any right to throw stones. And it's interesting to me that the only person in this passage who had the right to throw a stone didn't have one. Instead, you know how Jesus responds? Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't dismiss this woman's sin. He doesn't say, Okay, well, nobody's here to accuse you. You just keep on living how you've been living. Go on. That's the lifestyle you've chosen, so you just go on and live that lifestyle. Have fun. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus, Jesus didn't dismiss her sin. He forgave it. And basically what he tells her is, you don't have to stay here anymore. You don't have to live this life anymore. I don't condemn you. I'm going to forgive you. And because I am forgiving you, you have a chance at a fresh start. You don't have to stay where you are anymore. You don't have to live this lifestyle anymore. You don't have to be in this spot anymore. You can have a fresh start today. You can have a brand new life today. You can start walking a different path today. I don't condemn you. I'm here to let you make a change so that you can leave your life a sin. I'm giving you a second chance. And that second chance is a gift because it's something that none of us deserved. In fact, the word grace in Greek literally means an undeserved gift that brings joy. See, grace, it is undeserved. It is something we can't earn. It's something we can't purchase. It's something that we can't buy or achieve on our own. Grace is a gift. And here's the thing about a gift. A gift is not something you earn. It's something that is given to you. Grace is an undeserved gift. And here's the thing. Grace is the opposite of what's fair. I had a professor in seminary named Dr. Jack Cottrell who wrote a book on grace one time, and when he first turned in his manuscript to the publisher, he had a title in his book entitled Grace, the Opposite of Fair, and the publisher wanted to change his title to Grace More Than Fair because they thought the conservative Christian world wouldn't like the fact that he was calling grace the opposite of fair. Guys, I don't know about you, but that's messed up because I don't want God to treat me fairly. If God treats me fairly, what I deserve, if he gives me what I deserve, hell is all I'm going to get. I want him to treat me with grace. Grace is the opposite of fair. Yeah, it's more than fair. It's the opposite of fair. And it's not an excuse to sin. No, when you embrace this gift that God has given us, It changes you. See, that's what the Bible says. It says in the book of Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's not that grace is permission to sin. No, when you truly receive God's grace and appreciate it and understand what he has done for you, it motivates you to live up to what he's given to you. 
It motivates you to live for him. It changes you because you know you don't deserve it and you deserve nothing but hell, but God has freely given you everything through his son, Jesus Christ. Grace is a catalyst for change. And you have a choice. You can either accept God's grace, embrace it, and let it change you, or you can abuse God's grace. Ignore God's grace. If you're reading along in your Bible, you've probably noticed that there's a little header above this passage or maybe a footnote in your Bible that says some ancient manuscripts do not contain this passage that we just read, some ancient manuscripts of the Bible. And I bring that up because sometimes I don't even mention it because, but there's always somebody that catches me after service and says, why does it say that? You know, why does it say that exactly? So I might as well say it. See, when we go back and look at our ancient manuscripts we have in Scripture, we have certain manuscripts that are missing this passage here. And in some of those ancient manuscripts, there's a blank spot, a gap, where there should be something and there's not. And the ancient church father, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce his name, he writes about that. And he says the reason why there's a gap in some of these ancient manuscripts is because the early scribes of Scripture took this passage out in order to avoid scandal. See, grace is scandalous. People don't like it. It makes them feel uncomfortable. But Jesus is grace. And it might make us feel uncomfortable because it's undeserved. But grace, when you really do receive it and embrace it on Jesus' terms, it will change you forever. It's changed me. And if Jesus is the embodiment of grace, then that means we, as his church, as his followers, are to be the embodiment of grace in this world. See, shame, it towers over people. But grace stoops down. Shame plays on fear. But grace, it overcomes our fears with love. Shame well, it says, because I'm flawed, I'm worthless. But grace says, even though I'm flawed, I am priceless in God's sight. Shame believes that the only opinions that matter are the opinions of the crowd. Grace says the only opinion that matters is the opinion of our God and Father. Shame keeps us where we are. Grace says we don't have to stay where we are anymore. Shame throws rocks. Grace drops rocks. I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who embraces, lives in, and shares the grace of God every single day. Jesus is grace. And if you will embrace him as your Lord and Savior, his grace will not only show you a new way of life, but it will change you forever. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this time that we've had to open up your word and study it. And I just pray that as we leave this place, that we will be a people who both embrace your grace, but also share it with the world. Your son came, grace and truth, full of grace and truth. May we be full of the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.